Hello and welcome to Pieces of History with me, Colin McGrath. Just before I get into this week's episode, here is a message from Mark from Casting Through Ancient Greece podcast. In his final days, Alexander the Great's generals asked him who should succeed him. Alexander's answer, the strongest. Taken literally, this would see the close of the classical Greek age, an age thousands of years in the making. Join me, Mark Selleck, as I go back to retell the story of ancient Greece in my series Casting Through Ancient Greece. We will cast our way back to its beginnings, all the way through to the spread of its culture throughout the known world, thanks to Alexander and his generals. You can listen and subscribe to the series at www.castingthroughancientgreece.com or you can listen on your favourite podcasting platform. Don't forget to follow the series over on Twitter at Casting Greece or on Facebook at Casting Through Ancient Greece. I look forward to seeing you there. So this week I had the pleasure of speaking to Alex Diamond about the story of 1066. I hope you enjoy. Thanks very much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Um, no, not at all, mate. Thanks for having me. No problem at all. So we're talking tonight about the, the Normans. Um, so before we actually really get into it then, Alex, do you mind giving me a bit of your background and how you came to st- study this particular area in history? Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, uh, I, I guess I first went off to university to study history as an undergraduate. Um, I had a I had a pretty good teacher when it came to GCSE and A level, and uh, he really inspired me to sort of love the subject. And uh, yeah, I studied history down in uh, King's College London, and actually, I was I was very much not a medievalist then. You know, I uh, I was really into my eighteenth century, nineteenth century stuff. Uh, European history predominantly. I liked, you know, Napoleon and, and and the British Empire, European colonialism, stuff like that. Uh, and then in my in my final year of undergrad, I got placed in in the ballot in in the Norman Conquest of England special subject, and um, it was taught by a chap called Stephen Baxter, who was absolutely brilliant. And again, I sort of fell in love with medieval history. At that at that sort of late stage, if you like, in my academic development, and uh, I really loved it. And then I stayed on to do a master's uh, in medieval history, and then uh, went off to Oxford to start my to start my doctorate, supervised coincidentally by Stephen Baxter, who you know first taught me as as an undergrad uh, in what seems like a long time ago now. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I, I fell in love with the with the Normans and the Anglo Saxons, and and you know the story of of 1066 and the Norman Conquest, really, and and my my doctoral thesis is is linked to that. You know, it's not it's not a sort of rehashing of the story of the conquest, but it's it's looking at um, it's looking at the estates of the kings of England and the dukes of Normandy uh, around the time of the conquest. So now that you've brought up 1066, I'm going to make um, an admission here. Um, whenever I was growing up, we had the Irish curriculum, and obviously it was it was geared towards you know Irish history and the famine and the Irish Civil War and independence sure. and things like that. So we didn't necessarily have um, a background with Norman history in 1066 as well. And I would say there's probably a lot of people who are listening to this as well from the states, from Canada, from various parts all over the world. Who maybe don't necessarily know what 1066 is. So could you give me a, a like a brief outline of of exactly what it is before we get into the main crux of the whole conversation? Yeah, absolutely, mate. Um, 
So obviously 1066 refers to the year, most simply, 1066 AD or, or BCE, if you prefer that. Uh, uh, sorry, CE rather, common era. Uh, and it's essentially sort of shorthand for the Battle of Hastings and much wider, the Norman conquest of England. Um, what actually happens in 1066, if you like, I can give you a very a very whistle-stop tour, is that at the very beginning of the year, uh, 5th of January, uh, the King of England, King Edward the Confessor, dies. And you may think, okay, this is normal. Kings die all the time. Actually, King Edward lives to quite an old age. You know, he's probably 60-ish, um, doesn't die in battle. So what's the problem? Well, the problem was that King Edward, King Edward had no children. He dies childless. And this, coupled with the fact that he's got no living brothers, means that the, the Kingdom of England was essentially left without an obvious heir to the throne, right? So who's going to succeed him? Uh, as it happens, the day after uh, Edward's death, he's buried in Westminster Abbey, which is his own great infrastructure project uh, of the reign. You know, he, he he refounds the abbey in Westminster. He builds this lovely new church in, in the Romanesque style, which is the latest fashion. It's consecrated only a week before his death. Sadly, he's too ill to attend. But in accordance with his wishes, he, he's buried there and... On the very same day as his funeral, Harold Godwinson, the Earl of Wessex, is crowned the new King of England. And um, while this is seemingly you know, a, a peaceful transition of power, there's no problems on the day, the, Harold's coronation basically set, sends shockwaves uh, to some of England's neighbours, particularly uh, Duke William of Normandy to the south, and... Uh, rather confusingly, another King Harold, known as Harold Hardrada, who's the King of Norway to the east. And these two chaps, upon hearing about Edward's death and Harold's coronation, go, oh, actually, that's not right. I think I should be King of England, not Harold Godwinson. And they immediately start to prepare fleets and armies uh, in order to invade England to claim by force what they believed was theirs by rights, that is the throne of England. And so before the end of 1066, both of these armies invade England and we get three uh, sort of big battles. Lots of people die, including most of the named characters uh, in the story and, of course, count countless uh, others who are unknown. And until we get to the stage where William, Duke William of Normandy, is basically the last man standing after the most famous of, of, of the battles in 1066, the Battle of Hastings, which happens on the 14th of October. Um, and a couple of months later, on Christmas Day, 1066, uh, Duke William of Normandy adds King of England to his CV when he is crowned at Westminster Abbey, uh, the, the very place uh, where Edward was buried. And so, so that, that is essentially 1066 in a, nuts, in a nutshell. It's synonymous with the Norman Conquest, but of course, the Norman Conquest is is a longer process. It really only begins in 1066, if you, if you like. And although Williams eliminated most of his major rivals uh, and he's king, the conquest is far from complete at the end of 1066. Well, that's that's perfect. And um, that's a really good synopsis. <laughs> I'm sure you could talk for <laughs> a, lo a long time on that. Um, so if you don't mind, I suppose we're here to kind of really talk about the Normans in general. So 
if we go back um, a bit, could you maybe fill us in a wee bit on the actual kingdom of England at the time? How did it form? Who exactly were the Anglo-Saxons and where did they come from? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm, al- I'm always struggling to think about where's a good place to start. You know, do you do a Leo Tolstoy and go, right, let's start with, you know, the birth of Christ. Um, <laughs> um, I suppose a good place to start would be at the beginning of the Middle Ages, which is traditionally seen to be around 500 AD. Just before that, of course, most of Britain is, is Roman, right? We've, we've got Roman Britain, Ro- you know, Rome conquers um, Britain in the first century AD and, you know, sticks around for a good few hundred years. But at the beginning of the Middle Ages, England is home to the the Anglo-Saxons, okay? And the Anglo-Saxons are Germanic peoples from what is today you know, northern Germany um, and Denmark who, who mi- migrated to Roman Britain in large numbers from, from the 5th century, from the 400s. Um, and, and we say Anglo-Saxons, that's sort of shorthand for lots of different groups the the three big ones are the the Angles, the Saxons, and the Jutes, but but normally we just say Anglo-Saxons, and and they came to Britain uh, as as raiders, as traders, invaders, settlers, migrants, all sorts of things, and they were quite lucky in that they faced virtually no resistance from the Roman military because at at this time the the Western Roman Empire is sort of struggling to hold it together. Um, you know, you've got lots of internal civil war and foreign invasion on continental Europe as well, lots of migration, and it, it can't really deal with it. And so uh, in the early 5th century, the, the Roman military basically pulls out of Britain and says to all of the you know Romano-British, good luck, you're on your own. Um, uh, because, of course, they need that military to help to protect the hinterland, you know, Rome itself, if you like, in Italy. Because Britain's just a far-flung periphery of the empire. No one really cares about Britain um, in Rome, particularly, especially when Rome itself is under threat, which it is. Uh, you know, it doesn't actually work. Rome is sacked by the Visigoths, I think, in, in 410, which is the first time a foreign army had entered the city in, well, 800 years, I think. Um, so that that's the context how these Anglo-Saxons, due to the Anglo-Saxons, come uh, to England. Okay. Does that? Uh, well, in- England doesn't exist at this stage, but that's how they come to to the island of Great Britain. Yeah, of course. And how was the island, I suppose, of England divided up into? Obviously, we know it as counties and cities and states and villages by now. But at this point, then were there um, tribal kings, or how, how, what was the, the geography of the, of the countries like at this point then? Yeah, so I guess you know, as the Ang- as the Anglo Saxons come, they they sort of fight with the local, you know, Romano Celtic British, the, the the sort of remnants, those who are left behind when when the Roman military pulls out. They they fight with them, but they also intermarry, and there's a lot of you know dancing around, uh, politically speaking. But gradually, that the old Roman British are sort of are sort of pushed westward. Into into what is now Wales and and down into Cornwall as well. Um, I think some of them also actually flee to to Brittany. So 
uh, whereas the, the 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 Anglo-Saxons start to sort of coalesce uh, and form their own political units. You know, as you say, sort of tri- tribal kings. Really, um, we 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 call them petty kings um, because England itself as a kingdom was not born overnight. Um, the the area that would become England throughout most of of the Anglo-Saxon period, which is you know from the start of the Middle Ages all the way to 1066 is divided into these petty kingdoms and we, we uh, historians call it the heptarchy since there were seven and uh i can i can list them for you we've got uh, east anglia essex kent mercia northumbria sussex and wessex those are the, the that that's the heptarchy now of course it wasn't static like that always there were not always seven kingdoms sometimes there were more sometimes there were less as as you know power waxed and waned between kingdoms that were doing well and kingdoms that weren't doing so well if you see what i mean uh, mercia mercia was very powerful uh, during the 8th century for example um so that's what we get for most of the anglo-saxon period mm-hmm. and um eventually the kingdom of england is born um sort of because the viking because the vikings show up really um in uh, in in 865 we get a very large viking army turn up there's been there's been lots of viking activity going on in the ninth century but in eight, in 865 we get a huge viking army invades uh england basically and they take over much of the east. You know, the kingdom of East Anglia is gone. That's overrun by Vikings. Northumbria and Mercia were were, were mostly overrun as well. They're sort of left as, you know, weakened, truncated states. And Wessex was very nearly conquered as well, but partly uh, due to accidents of geography, because they're sort of not you know they're further away from where the vikings are, la- are landing but also because of the leadership of uh, king alfred alfred the great who you probably have heard of um they managed to stave off the vikings and they managed to hold on and eventually uh, wessex um the sort of last you know remaining kingdom of the anglo-saxons was able to conquer the the viking bits of territory uh, which we call the dane law and thus they were able to unify England, if you like, under their rule. Does that make sense? Of course, yeah. And so, um, well, King Alfred, then what year are we finishing off them? Whatever, the fact that obviously he's kind of challenged the Vikings, he's overcome them. What year are we kind of, has England, I suppose, kind of settled down by this point? Is it late 800s or early 900s by this point? Yeah, sort of the the the, the Kingdom of England uh, is traditionally dated to um, the early tenth century, nine to seven, I believe, which is um, the reign of King Athelstan. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, 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 if you like, Alfred sort of holds on uh, and is able to make peace with with the Vikings. His his son, uh, a chap called Edward the Elder is able to expand Wessex territory and sort of push the Vikings back a little bit. And this process, this sort of, uh, we shouldn't really call it a, a reconquest because it's Wessex conquering areas that Wessex has never really ruled, if you see what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's 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 kicking the Vikings off the island and, and that process is really only complete under, under the reign of King Athelstan, 
in the early in the early 10th century and and that's how the kingdom of england um comes into existence you know the the the, the kings of wessex they they go from calling themselves kings of wessex and then they end up calling themselves you know king of of the angles and the saxons and then they just say king of the english mm-hmm. and then so if we slightly move across the channel then um over to france and obviously why we're here to talk about the normans um sure. so so exactly what what was the duchy of normandy at this time and again i suppose with the as you've brilliantly wrapped up with england there how, how did it form um who exactly were the normans because I know myself over the years I've heard the term Norman this and there's a castle Norman Norman castle and there's plenty yeah. of Nor- there's plenty of Norman castles within Ireland but really I don't actually know who they are so do you mind giving me a brief dummy's guide to who the Normans were No not at all um basically the Normans are Vikings originally not too uh, different at all from these Vikings who come and, uh, you know, invade Anglo-Saxon England like we've just been talking about. Same sort of guys. They they came to northern France and did their usual thing. They're raiding, they're trading and invading. But instead of doing it in England, they, as as the Kingdom of England, if you like, is is forming, you know, as as Wessex is in the ascendancy, pushing the Vikings out. They, the Vikings say, "Oh, actually, we probably shouldn't invade, you know, England anymore because the West, you know, the, the the kings of Wessex have got their act together, and it's going to be quite difficult for us." So instead of going to England, they decide, "Ah, oh, we'll, we'll go to France instead." And in the early 10th century, um, we get a group of Vikings who uh, are led by a chap called Rollo. Uh, who managed to cause so much trouble for the King of France, uh, King Charles at the time, that he makes a deal with them. And he basically says, look, you know, stop sailing down the Seine, stop looting Paris, stop killing all my people. I'm going to give you a bit of territory uh, uh, along, along the north coast of France. You can call that your own. You can settle there. It's yours providing that you stop doing all this Viking stuff. And by the way, if you protect that area and the river down to Paris from other groups of Vikings doing the same thing. And so that is how Normandy is born. And and, and the name Normandy uh, and the Normans, they come from uh, basically the name Northmen which is how the how the Franks, how the French described these Vikings because they came from the north, they were Northmen, and that's Normans. And, and so Normandy was the land of the Northmen. And the, the, the traditional date for the foundation of Normandy is uh, 9-11. That's, that's when it's tr- traditionally dated to. Mm-hmm. And did they set up um, a, a capital in Normandy then, or where, where did they primarily situate themselves? Yeah, so they're uh, initially they are they are set up in a city called Ru- uh, Rouen, which is just um, on the Seine, and um, they 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 initially claimed the the title Counts of Rouen. Okay, so so Rollo, this Viking leader, um, he is he is the Count of Rouen. Uh, they're not kings. Normandy is not a kingdom. Uh, um, 
Normandy is it's known as as a duchy. Uh, initially, they call themselves counts, but as they grow in power, they they claim the title duke, which is seen to be a bit more prestigious, uh, a bit more higher rank, if you like. And they, they so they're set up in Rouen initially, and they are they are at least technically in in a legal sense, if you like, vassals of the king of france and they owe him their allegiance uh so that they're, they're not they're not independent you know they are they, they they technically owe the king of france their allegiance and there was nothing in you you know there was nothing unusual about this uh, at, at the time you know so we're talking 10th 10th century france um there were several of these sort of territorial lordships or, or principalities as we call them um, Flanders was one just to the northeast of Normandy. Uh, Anjou was another to the south. Aquitaine in southern France, Brittany. So you've got all these. You've got all these principalities, these dukes and counts who are, are technically vassal subjects of the King of France, but in in practice, you know, r- royal authority was quite weak, and uh, in in the tenth century. The French kings only really controlled, at least directly, a small area around Paris and Orléans, whereas the, the 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 dukes and the counts that I mentioned ruled their areas often without much uh, deference to the king, who who was their overlord. You know, they they fought each other, um, they fought sometimes against the king as well. You know, in various formations of alliances, and and this wasn't. This wasn't necessarily seen as rebellion, but rather sort of you know gentlemanly conflict bet- between princes. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Of course, yeah. They were kind of almost filling each other out to see strength, superiority, wealth, you know, th- land grabs, things like that as well. I suppose it's happened throughout yeah. the centuries as well. Like, wh- wh- why did Rouen become? Why was it such a important? place is it because it was like you said it was on the Seine and it was a gateway to the English Channel or why was that? Yeah I mean essentially that that's exactly it. Um, Rouen is the sort of first major centre you know if, if you're sailing um, up the Seine if you like upstream Rouen is the first major centre that you're going to hit before you get to Paris and uh, you know it's, it's an old Frankish uh, settlement um, I mean, I don't, I don't actually know off the top of my head, but it's probably there's, pro- you know, the Romans probably built something there, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's it's historic and uh, it's very well placed for that sort of trade coming in, obviously to you know in, in deep into into France, into the sort of royal heartlands, um, but also going out to England and the rest of the North Sea world as well. And uh, what's what's quite interesting is that when the Vikings are, you know, pillaging and looting and raping, um, Rouen is uh, it is sacked and um, it is looted, but it's never destroyed. It it, it keeps coming back uh, because there's there's money to be made, I guess, and 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 so it's uh, it, it it survives through this tumultuous period, and it seems a very obvious place for. Uh, you know, entrepreneurial Vikings to set up shop as they do in, in 9-11 under Rollo. Um, and of course, once Rollo is in charge, once the Vikings have control of that 
settlement, they do their very best to defend it. They, they you know, they know their way around ships and water, so so they they're quite successful in in doing that. And and Rouen remains uh, the sort of principal city of the Norman Duchy for a long time um, until William the Conqueror sort of founds a, founds a new major city right in the centre of Normandy, which is Caen. So, so if you look at the Duchy of Normandy, uh, Rouen is sort of quite far to the east. But William sort of says, "Okay, well, if we're gonna if we're gonna rule the whole duchy, you know, probably better to have somewhere a bit more logical, a bit more in in the middle of things." So he he does his best to set up like a new centre in Caen, and that's not to say that you know Rouen is any is in any way diminished. Um, it's important to remember that we don't really have capital cities in the, in this period. Um, the you know it, 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 in a sense the the duke is the capital and the and and the government follows him wherever he goes and of course he's going to spend lots of time in important centers like Rouen and Caen but yeah as long as you're aware of that and that's important mm-hmm. and so you've just mentioned a name obviously which a lot of people know William the Conqueror so um obviously this is your bread and butter obviously but just in case some people don't know, can you give give me a, a brief synopsis of who William actually was? And did he come after Rollo, like, say, a few decades later? Was he a century later? Like, how, and how was he a Viking himself? Like, because I'll, I'll be honest with you, Alex, I don't really know a lot of William's background as well. I know the name. Yeah, I know sure. What he did, I, I know what he did, but I don't really know the actual man himself and his background. No, absolutely. Uh, fair enough. And, um, well, I, I suppose straight away, you know, I, I called him William the Conqueror. He is known for conquering England in 1066, and hence he earns that sort of epithet. Um, before that, he was known, uh, and perhaps even after, by his enemies as William the Bastard, referring to his fairly low birth. Um, I can explain that in just a moment. But in answer to your uh, question about, you know, how how long in time are we dealing? Well, it, you know, Rollo becomes the first Duke of Normandy, if you like, in in nine eleven, and William is born. Uh, William is born in, uh, just over a century after that. He's born in about ten twenty seven, ten twenty eight. We don't actually know the exact year of his birth, but it's about ten twenty seven, ten twenty eight, and he is born. Uh, his father is uh, Robert, who is the Duke of Normandy. And um, the problem for William is that his mother was of low birth and also his father was not married to her, um, hence the bastard. So her name was her lever and she was uh, the daughter of a leather tanner, I think, in in a, a, a ducal city in Normandy called Falaise. And the story goes that, you know, Duke Robert was going about his business. He saw this woman uh, and said, yep, yeah, she looks good. Have her scrubbed and sent up to my room sort of thing, you know. And uh, this, this union um, results in a pregnancy, uh, which Robert 
acknowledges as his and says, okay, yeah, this is my son. And he's, you know, he's raised as the Duke's son. There's no question of his sort of paternal heritage. And, and uh, I would stress that that is the most important thing, of course, that, you know, his father is the Duke. Um, his enemies do insult him for his, for his, his mother's low birth. But ultimately, when he comes to succeed his father as the Duke in, in, in 1035, his father dies. And William's only very young, you know, so if he's born in, in 1027, 1028, uh, you know, he's, he's only going to be about eight years old when his father dies in, in, in 1035. And that's also a problem, right? If he if he's very young, it's going to be difficult for him to rule, and there's going to be other people saying, "Well, I can probably do it better." And and that is compounded with the fact that his mother is of low birth. Um, but what's more important is that his father was the duke, and so in in that sense, he's pretty safe as long as long as your father was the duke, you've got a pretty good claim to 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 be the next one, mm-hmm. and. William's early uh, ducal reign, if you like, is very, very difficult for him. He's only a boy. Um, it's a very tumultuous period. Um, I wouldn't go quite as far as a civil war, but it's quite anarchic. Uh, we get lots of feuding going on. Pe- people in Normandy use the vacuum of power, if you like, to to get one over on their enemies. And we, and we call this feuding. Are you familiar with the concept of, of the feud? So we get lots of feuding, and um, you know William is sort of spirited away from place to place to you know to try and keep him out of uh, out of all this trouble. And 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 there's this one famous instance where you know his guardian, a chap called Osborne, Osborne the steward, who is the ducal steward, you know he's charged with with looking after the young William, the young duke, and. Um, a chap breaks into the quarters and murders Osborne in his bed as he's sleeping right next to the young Duke William, uh, which must have been quite a horrific, you know, inst- um, sort of entry to the world, if you like, for for for, for William. As as oh oh hello Osborne, what's going on over there? Oh, you're dead. Um, <laughs> so you have that, you know, you have this sort of baptism of fire, really, for 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 the young William and. I suppose you do feel a bit sorry for him. Uh, and anyway, he, he, he survives this, this early period. He grows up and he becomes every bit the sort of quintessential medieval ruler. He, he's incredibly tough. Um, he's a great warrior. You know, he can, he can fight very well. Um, he's a good Christian prince. Uh, when the Vikings first turn up in, in Normandy, they are they are not uh, Christian. They're 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 sort of Norse pagans, as as the Christians would call them. But that but over over you know a couple of generations they they become Christian, and and but certainly by the time that William is born, um, they're absolutely uh, indistinguish indistinguishably Christian from the rest of the other French lords. And um, William is is seen as this good you know Christian warrior prince, and he slowly over time takes control of the duchy and uh i'd say certainly by the 10 by the mid 1040s he's in a pretty good position right so we have we have uh, a battle in 1047 the battle of valedun where a bunch of 
uh, rebels have got together um, to to sort of fight against uh, Duke William, and with a bit of help from the King of France, William is able uh, to achieve victory on on the battlefield. Um, and after that, it's it's a lot more smooth sailing for for William after that, really. Even though contemporaries still like to remind him that he's a bastard. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I suppose it's a stick to beat him with as well. Um, but then, um, yeah, I mean, it is definitely a stick to beat him with. I mean, there's there's a there's another great um, scene from William's life where he's campaigning in. Uh, along along Normandy's uh, southern frontier in a town called Alençon and uh, he's besieging this you know rebel castle and 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 William's very you know he's a master of siegecraft right this is what he does um the the battle that i mentioned at Valedun in in 1047 that that sort of thing is quite a rare occurrence normally warfare is conducted sort of slowly war of attrition kind of style right where you, you you hold yourself up in a castle with a load of armed guys and you basically say come get me mm-hmm. and then you know william's job is to is to invest that castle to besiege it to starve them out and william's very methodical he does this very well anyway during this one particular siege in in Alençon around 1050 the defenders of the castle think it's a very funny um, to drape over the castle walls uh, animal hides, so uh, you know animal skins, and basically saying you're you're the bastard son of a leather tanner's daughter, because of course the, the the leather tanner will be using these animal hides, right? So they drape these um, these animal hides over the walls, saying, "Oh, look, it's William the bastard uh, son of of a leather tanner's daughter," and he remains calm. He he he's not goaded into assaulting the castle, which I can only imagine is what these guys were trying to do when they did that. Uh, and eventually, he wins. And, and, and when he enters the castle, when he enters the the town, he he mutilates these defenders by cutting off all their hands and feet. Right. Okay. So you know, be yeah, beware. I can see why, because if someone was goading me like that. Not that I'm saying I would go to that extreme. Obviously, it's a diff- different era altogether. Yeah. <laughs> but, but I can see why I did it because you know you don't. And they they really must have held on to that um, William the Bastard. That obviously it, it followed him throughout his whole life. Then it must have been a real, like I said, it was a stick to beat him with. And yet, you would think by this point, after that sage and what he'd done to those folks, did. Did that moniker still stay with him then over the next number of years, or you know? Yeah, it's um, it's a good, it's a good question, and I mean, the the historical sources that come from within Normandy never refer to William with with this name, and of course, you know, they're, they're going to be pro they're going to be pro Duke, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of these sources are written for the Ducal House, so. Um, and William has has his own biographer because you know we're, when he conquers England, this is seen as a very big deal. So he he gets his own dedicated biography um, written by a chap called William of Poitiers, um, and there's also a chap called William of Jumiège who writes a sort of longer history of the Duchy of Normandy, um, looking particularly at, at the deeds of of all of the Norman dukes going back to Rollo. 
So none of these guys, you know, call William William the Bastard. But the the contemporary writers from um, Normandy's sort of neighbours, especially if they're not really friends with Normandy, certainly do continue to call him William the Bastard. But they, you know, uh, I think that this example of of the siege of Alençon probably meant that you you were taking a pretty big risk if you wanted to call him that to his face or you know when he was there besieging your castle and so i think after that it, he probably heard it a lot less even if in the texts from from the neighboring polities around normandy these writers still still refer to to william uh, as william the bastard um in in the safety of their you know monastic cell far away from william's reach or whatever so william's obviously cut all the hands and feet of all the people who obviously don't like him he cemented his place in Normandy. When, how did he go around going over to England and conquering, so to speak? Yeah, so um, just to sort of wind back the clock a, a little bit, but yeah, I mean, when, you know, I, I spoke to you before that William has a tough time, you know, certainly for the first sort of 10 years of his reign as Duke from from 1035 when his father dies. Uh, but he, you know, he, his sort of identity and his rule is, you know, forged in blood and iron by the time he's he, he's an adult in the late ten forties. And actually, he he sort of goes from strength to strength to strength. Really, he's but by the time of King Edward the Confessor's death in in early January ten sixty six, he's Duke William is in a pretty strong position. Um, he he has made an ally out of an erstwhile enemy in uh marrying Matilda of Flanders um the 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 count of Flanders has been a traditional enemy of the duke of normandy so they they're sort of just to the northeast if you like they they're the they're the neighboring um lordship to the northeast and uh, actually probably around the same time that he's cutting off these these hands and feet in Alençon he he secures what for him must be the perfect marriage, which is Matilda of Flanders. Not only is she uh, the daughter of, of the Count of Flanders, so cementing an alliance with a former enemy, but she's incredibly, incredibly blue-blooded. She is a she's got all sorts of royal bloodlines and dynasties, you know, flowing through her veins. She's a descendant of of Charlemagne, the Carolingians. Uh, she's she's descended also from the the, the Anglo-Saxon royal house uh, Alfred, and I think she's also descended from the more recent uh, French royal dynasty, the Capetians. And for someone who is being called William the Bastard, you can imagine that's a pretty good match. He's, he's, he's a social climber uh, effectively in this, and so you know he must have been he must have had to negotiate quite hard, I think, to get this match. Um, but I think this certainly helps him because Matilda, you know, has got uh, has got very very blue blood. And also um, in in 1063, he expands Normandy south by conquering the county of Maine, which is sort of a a small buffer lordship between Normandy and their enemies to the south in Anjou. So he, so he conquers Maine, and uh, in 1064. He fights a short war against his neighbour to the west, the Duke of Brittany, um, 
and, and and wins that as well. So he's he's sort of made sure that all of his you know surrounding enemies are pacified, and uh, his his main enemies to the south, uh, Count Geoffrey of Anjou and, and King Henry of France, actually both die in 1060, leaving sort of weaker, younger successors who would not really be much trouble for Norm- for Normandy. So when Edward dies, it's sort of the perfect moment for William to do this great project, which is the, the invasion. As soon as he hears the news of Edward's death and Harold's coronation, he immediately starts to prepare his invasion fleet. This is depicted on the, on the Bayeux Tapestry. We can talk about this, of course, uh, in the next episode in more, in more detail. The, the Bayeux Tapestry is a wonderful source which tells the story of the conquest, essentially, from, from the Norman perspective. Um, and yeah, so, so William, you know, he, he, he builds ships, he, he levies the men, he gets his horses ready, he kits them out with all the armor and, and also make sure he packs lots of red wine for the trip. And that's actually depicted on the Bayo tapestry, which is brilliant. He, he's, he's ready to cross in, in the summer of 1066, but we're told that due to unfavorable winds, uh, he's not able to cross when, when he is ready to do so. I was just going to say, and I think that's a perfect way to finish off then because sure. he's so he's, he's on the coast. He's ready to go. <laughs> and then I think, I think that's the yeah, same. Stay tuned to be continued. What happens next? Stay tuned. So I think, like I said before, we've covered so much and I think this is an episode which it just can't be done in half an hour. We need to kind of split it up into two. So I would love it, Alex, if you can come back next time and continue with 1066 because we've started in England, we've come over the channel, we've went to France, and we need to go back to England again and to see what happens to be to be concluded, I suppose. Yeah, no, absolutely. I'd I'd love to come back and 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 also talk about you know what's going on more specifically in Edward the Confessor's reign, which sort of leads up to 1066 as well, and and we'll see these two threads come together if you like. Uh, you know, so so we can leave William waiting uh, on the coast, sort of indefinitely, and then we can sort of rewind the clock a bit back and 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 say, well, what's you know what's going on in England um, during Edward the Confessor's reign, uh, and then we can take that up to ten sixty six as well. Oh, perfect! Yeah, that's really really good. Yeah, and I'll just link the two together. Lovely. Oh, that's I, I really enjoyed that, Alex. That was great. Thanks very much, mate.